So today we are wrapping up our series on, what are we calling it? Yeah, divine direction. And it's been all about making godly decisions. It's been all about knowing and trusting and following God's plan for our life. And so we focused a lot on knowing God's plan and figuring out God's will and trying to kind of understanding what God's plan is for our life. And today we're going to talk about walking it out. God's divine direction is important to understand and it's important to know and we want to learn it. We want to watch it and see it, but we want to participate in it, right? We want to walk out his plan for our life. And so I think once we have his divine direction and we know where he's taking us, we know what he's calling us to do, we see who he's calling us to become, then we want to participate. We want to jump in. We want to walk this thing out. So where exactly do we fit in? If, if God's the one that's making the plan, and he's leading us and guiding us on the steps that we're supposed to take, and he's even empowering us to take those steps, it's like, what's our part, right? How do we participate in the plan? Once we have his direction, how do we walk it out? So today we're gonna go Old Testament, and we're gonna look at a great famous story of Nehemiah, and his story is found in the book of Nehemiah, which is in the Old Testament, if you go to the very middle of your Bibles, that's going to be Psalms. Look to the left. A couple of books, you'll come to Nehemiah, and while you're looking for that, um, let me give you a little backstory on what's happening in this story. So God's people are Israel, the Israelites, the children of Israel. Those are God's people, and he chose them, and he loves them, and he's healed them and he's brought them through a lot of hard stuff, and he's delivered them from slavery, and he's walked them out of Egypt and slavery and into freedom in the promised land, and in return, he asked them to be holy, to be separate, and to be different from the rest of the world because they would honor him, and that they would worship only him, that they would keep his laws, and they have done a horrible job of doing that. And so for page after page after page after page, if you're reading through the Old Testament, you see them doing just the opposite of that. They're not staying holy. They're not staying separate. They're not being different. They're not just worshiping him. And so finally, I guess to get their attention, around 600 B.C., God allows a king from a neighboring country to come over. The king's name is Nebuchadnezzar, and he just basically trashes Jerusalem and he knocks down all the buildings, and he knocks down the wall, he burns the city gates, he burns down the temple, and they haul all of God's children back hundreds of miles to Babylon. But as this is going on, the prophet Jeremiah speaks to the people, and God says through Jeremiah, look, it's gonna be rough, it's gonna be bad, it's gonna be hard, I'm gonna get your attention one way or another, it's gonna be a rough 70 years, but after 70 years, then I'm gonna bring you back and restore you, and sure enough, after 70 years, God keeps his promise, and they get their freedom back, and they start slowly moving back to Jerusalem, and they start rebuilding the city, and they rebuild the temple, and after they've been rebuilding for a few years, we meet this guy, Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is not part of the process to rebuild Jerusalem. In fact, he's still back in Babylon because he's got like a cush government job, He's working for the king of Babylon as his cupbearer. I don't know if you took those proficiency tests in high school about like what job you might do when you grow up. The cupbearer, it's a pretty sweet gig. His job is to taste wine 
for the king, right? And he says, oh, it's a delicate bouquet, you know, smoky overtones, that kind of stuff. Um, but the bigger deal is it was really common to poison kings in those days. And so his main job was to taste it, and the king wasn't waiting to see what the flavor was. Uh, you know, he was waiting to see if he dropped dead. And if he did, then he would stay away from that particular wine. So this is his job. It's a, it's a good job, and it's a pretty well-respected job. So like he can, becomes almost like a counselor to the king. So he's got, this, he's got this good job, and everybody else is going back to Jerusalem for years, decades, and they're rebuilding, and it's happening, but he's staying back in Babylon. And we kind of pick up this story where God is about to give Nehemiah some divine direction. And he's gonna call him to do something amazing. And he's gonna call him to become someone that's really amazing. And so as we get into this, I'm gonna ask you to think of your divine direction. I'm gonna ask you to think about what God is calling you to do. What is God calling you to change? Who is God calling you to become? And if you feel like you don't yet know, your divine direction, then we'll just start there with our very first idea, and that is it begins with a burden. So here's the story. Um, Nehemiah chapter one starts with some people coming back to Babylon. They've been over to Jerusalem and they're doing stuff, including Nehemiah's brother. And they come back and they're like giving a report on how things are going, you know, in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah asks his brother, you know, how's it going over there? And his brother says, dude, it's horrible. It's horrible because we used to have a wall around the city of Jerusalem and that kept all of our enemies away, but those walls got knocked down. And so now we're trying to rebuild the temple. We're trying to rebuild our city. We're trying to rebuild our homes, but our enemies keep coming in and attacking us and we can't, we can't get anything done. It's a hot mess over there, man. Nothing is, it's terrible. It's a disaster. And when Nehemiah hears that, he is like crushed to hear. This is God's holy city, man. This is God's temple, these are God's people. And this, the humiliation, and just to know that they're so vulnerable and weak, it's just, he just, it just really is upsetting to him. In fact, look what it says, this is Nehemiah 1, verse four. Nehemiah says, when I heard this, when I got this report about how it's going on over there, I sat down and wept. In fact, he says, for days, I mourned and I fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven. He was just, he was just, he was crushed by the thought of God's people and God's temple and God's city being humiliated. And he started thinking, somebody's gotta do something. Maybe it should be me. You know what he had? Us old timey Christians like this word. He had a burden, right? He had something on his mind that was so upsetting to him that he couldn't forget about it and he couldn't eat and he couldn't sleep and he couldn't think about anything else. It was like God wouldn't let him let it go. When he heard that news, it just, it just, it wrecked him. He had this just divine burden and that divine burden led him to this divine direction to rebuild the wall. And I think a lot of times, your divine direction starts with a divine burden. A lot of times you don't know what God wants you to do, and he doesn't say, this is what I want you to do. He gives you something that's very upsetting to you. It's, it's hard for you, it's heartbreaking. That's, that's a divine burden. A lot of times our divine direction starts with a divine burden. Um, let me give you an example. You know who at our church has a divine burden? Is Brian and Lee Towell. 
a lot of you know them, but God has given them a divine burden for children in foster care. And it happened decades ago. It happened a lot. They saw kids in foster care and what their life was like and, and how things were for them, and it just, it crushed them. It's like they said, somebody's got to do something. Maybe it should be me. That burden gave them direction. A divine burden gave them divine direction. And, and it's like they just couldn't not do something. And so they have fostered a bunch of kids. They adopted three. They've mentored about a million. And now they oversee our ministry here at this church. One, two, one fam ministry is all about supporting fostering an adoptive family. So they saw the situation and it, it wrecked them. And that divine burden gave them divine direction. So if you want to know, you know, what God wants you to do, it might start with what he won't let you not do. Did that come out right? It might start with, (laughs) this is horrible grammar. It might start with what he won't let you not do. It might start with something that is so upsetting to you that you can't stop thinking about it and you can't eat and you can't sleep and you can't think about anything else. So you might ask yourself the question, what is God wrecking you with? What is breaking your heart? What is that thing that keeps you up at night? Maybe it's a habit that you know you have to give up. Maybe it's a sin that you know you have to let go of. Maybe it's a relationship that you know God is calling you to fix. Maybe it's some really good thing that he's calling you to do. Maybe it's a ministry that he's calling you to start. What is, what is your divine burden? Is it, is it kids that don't have families? Is it families that don't have food? Is it people that don't know Jesus? Maybe that's your divine burden. And that divine burden may be the beginning of your divine direction. A lot of times it begins with a burden. And then once you have that burden and you know what you're being called to do or you know what you're being called to change or you know who you're being called to become, now you're ready for the second idea, which is a warning. And it is, do not try this alone. So here's Nehemiah chapter one, verse four. He says, I was crushed and I cried and I mourned and I fasted and I prayed, and I think Nehemiah realized that God was calling him to rebuild this wall and to do this big, hard, impossible, amazing thing. First thing he does, he starts praying. In verse 11, he says, God, here's a good prayer. Please grant me success. He he knows it's God's will because God's the one that gave him the burden, right? So he knows he's supposed to do it. And so he prays, God, just just give me success because he knows he's not gonna take one step without God. He's not gonna try one, he's not gonna nail one nail. He's not gonna do one single thing without God's blessing. He knows he won't be successful without God's blessing. And if you're taking on something really big, neither will you. God doesn't just wanna like, tell you his plan, right, and roll them all up and put a rubber band and hand it to you and then step back and leave you on your own. God wants to give you his plan, but then he wants to guide you and he wants to empower you and he wants to open doors so that you can succeed. Here's a harsh truth for you. Without God, 
You're only going to go as far as your own wisdom and your own power will take you. Without God, I mean, who, who else, where, where else are you going to get wisdom? Where else are you going to get power? Without God, you're only going to go as far. You're only going to become as much. You're only going to do as much as your own power and wisdom can get for you. And God has bigger plans for you than just that. God wants to call you and direct you to do something incredible. God wants to call you to do something so amazing that without him, it's impossible. And I think the sooner you acknowledge that the thing he's directing you to do or the person he's directing you to become, as soon, the sooner you acknowledge that that's out of your reach, the sooner that you will realize that you are 100% dependent on him. And that is a good day. Because when you do understand that, then you will do what Nehemiah did. And you will immediately go to God for help and for his blessing. Because like, when, you're, when you're the limiting factor, right, you can only go so far. But when God's the limiting factor, there's no limit. And this took me years to learn from an old person, okay? This took me years to realize that I was settling for little stuff that I could do for God instead of amazing stuff that God wanted to do through me. And now, I don't even want to be part of something. I don't even want to be part of something if it's so small that I could make it happen. And, and neither should you. God has a huge plan to change history and to bring his kingdom come to the world and he wants you to have a huge part in this huge plan. And can I, can I tell you something? I know most of you, you're not up to it. <laughs> you're, you're not. And, and neither am I. And neither was Nehemiah. He wasn't, he wasn't like a great leader. He wasn't, he wasn't a great super, he wasn't even a, he wasn't even a contractor. He, he wasn't even a contractor. The guy's a professional wine taster, right? He is completely unqualified. Do you think God knew that when he called him? Of course he did. I think God preferred that. He knew that if he got somebody that was complete, I mean, if he'd gotten the world's greatest contractor or whatever, that person might have tried to do it on, its own, on their own strength. And they would have reached a limit, right? They would have hit the lid. But he got somebody that was completely unqualified. And now the only limit is God, which means there is no limit. In all of, like, churchisms, right? In all of the Christianese that we speak, do you want to hear one of the least true things that Christians love to say? Here it comes. See if you've ever heard this one before. God won't give you more. <laughs> Everyone just goes like, oh, shut up. As soon as I said that, I could, no, don't even. You're here, you're going through the hardest thing in your life, you know, and somebody says, well, don't worry. God won't give you more than you can handle. And you know, they're, they're, they're trying to encourage you, right? They're trying to make you think it's almost over. It's not almost over. I'm telling it, it, this idea that God won't give you more than you can handle is a pretty thought, and it's a fun thought. The problem is, it's just not true. God loves to give us more than we can handle, right? How many of you have, got, have God has given you more than you could handle, but through him, you've been able to handle it, right? That's why, that's why, because that glorifies God, right? This is how God gets the credit and the glory instead of us getting the credit. God loves to get us more than we can handle so that we'll lean on him, so that we'll trust him, so that we'll depend on him. This is why I wear these bracelets. You guys see these bracelets I wear? This first bracelet says the word 
nothing. And it's a reminder to me on the back, it says John 15, five, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is Jesus, he's saying it to me. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I can't, and neither can you. And then my other bracelet says the word everything. Philippians 4.13 reminds me that through Christ, I can do anything. Apart from him, I can do nothing. But through him, I can do anything. And, and so can you. God is calling you to do something awesome. God is calling you to become someone amazing. Do not try this alone. Here's your third idea. Start small. Start small. Start small. Start small. Start. So Nehemiah's got this, this burden, right, for this wall. And it says for days he cried and mourned and fasted and prayed. And then, at some point, Nehemiah dried his tears and got off his knees and ate a sandwich and got started. And whatever God is directing you to do or whoever he's directing you to become, if you're ever going to get there, one thing is for sure, you gotta start. Uh, Craig Rochelle has a great line in that book. He says, you will, this is like simultaneously the most obvious stupid statement ever and the most brilliant profound statement ever. He says, you will never finish something that you don't start. <laughs> I don't know whether to like applaud or say duh, right? It's, it's both, right? It's that you'll never finish something you don't start. And it doesn't have to be a huge start, right? The first step isn't always that pretty, right? Do you remember when your baby learned to walk? Remember that first step? And everybody's like got the camera ready and everybody's all giddy with anticipation and here's your baby with that giant baby head, right? He's all, <laughs> oh, he's all top heavy. And he's like, finally, he's just like, oh, here it comes. Oh, and it's like, oh, boom. And the sky opened up, right? And the angels began to sing and you just knew this kid is gonna cure cancer, man. This is, this is an Olympian, right? This is certainly, this is a Nobel Prize waiting. You loved that first step, but it wasn't really that great a step. It was kind of wobbly, right? It was kind of small, it was kind of insignificant, and God feels the same way. Look at this verse in Zechariah, Zechariah 4.10, it says, do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Nehemiah did this incredible thing, right? He rebuilt the wall around God's holy city. We're talking about it. Think about it. We're talking about this construction project 3,000 years later. This is, a, this is a really big deal but it didn't start big, right? It didn't start with bulldozers and cranes and the mayor of Jerusalem giving him a key to the city, right, and naming the wall after him or something. It started small. It started with one little step. 
The first step is actually in uh, chapter two, verse five. It's just, it's just Nehemiah just asking the king if he could go to Judah. And that wasn't a huge step. That wasn't a glamorous step. It wasn't an impressive step. It was small, but it was a start. God loves to see the work begin. God loves small beginnings. Um, here's a great illustration of that, is this church. You know, God is really blessing this church. Really, even in, I get, to me, the weirdest couple of years ever. And we're reaching and teaching and helping more people than we ever have before. And lives are being transformed and families are being restored and people are meeting Jesus. We've baptized, I think, 32 people so far this year. We're, we're averaging about a baptism a week, right? So I'm figuring out how long it's gonna take us to get to the whole world, right? So this is, this, that's, that's pretty good, right? We're distributing groceries to about 30 families every week. We're, we're, we have, our life groups are coming back. Who'd have thunk that would ever happen again? I think we have 22 life groups meeting right now. We're sponsoring 250 kids in Kenya right now. Um, we have financed the planting of 102 churches in India. This church has financed the planting of 102 churches in India, and in those churches in India, 5,000 people have come to know Jesus. That's pretty good, right? Yeah, you can clap. That's, that's pretty good. God is doing some really big stuff at CBCB, but it didn't start like this, right? It started small. It started with about 35 people meeting in a tent. It wasn't even a tent. It was, some of you remember, it was behind the old loft coffee shop. It's Chick's Meat Market now. And back in their backyard, they had like a carport or something like a metal roof over a concrete slab. And that's where we had church. And they had um, like tent, like that vinyl, that material, you know, and we would like flop it down like that. And we first went in there, it was so covered with black mold that I went in there with a power washer, but the mold was stronger than the vinyl. So like I gave it one blast and it just went and it all fell apart. So we bought new, this vinyl stuff and, and it was white, which was stupid. If you ever start a church, don't do that. We, we couldn't get it dark in there and so we're trying to show a sermon on video and it was so bright in the room that you couldn't see the video. So I was always telling the preacher down at CBC, Robert, I would say, hey, wear a dark shirt or something, man, because we can't, like once in a while his hand would go by and you'd see, <laughs> you couldn't see, it was horrible. I, I, I can't imagine, like our projector was that one that your grandparents used to have, you know, it was just, it was horrible, it was horrible. The weather, we were outside, man. We started in October and it would like, it would rain and the wind would blow and the flaps would be doing that, you know, and you couldn't hear anything and everybody would be sitting with their feet like this because the water was running under their feet. We had um, animal problems. We had dogs and cats walking in there all the time. We had this one cat, he came in every, right when I went on stage, he went on stage. And I say he, we know it was a male because he would give himself a bath right there. He like lift his leg up, but right there in front of God and everybody. It wasn't a glamorous start, right? I remember one morning going in there and it was super cold and rainy and windy and the flaps had blown up on top of the building and some of you know I don't like heights and all that so I'm the only one there. 
So I found this old wooden ladder and I'm crawling up on this ladder all nervous and I'm standing on the top of this thing and the flaps are like this on top of the building and they're just covered with mud and leaves and water and you know ice and whatever. So I said, okay, well, I started pulling them down but as I did, a big gust of wind, like a sail, the wind caught that thing and it was like, whoa, and I fell off of that ladder and like, bang, right on, right on my back. And you know how you, you're laying there and you're thinking, you know, like, what happened? You know, am I okay? I, I taste blood, is this good? What is, what is happening? And I'm like trying to clear my head and as I look up from my back, the flap opens all the way up and all of that ice and mud and stuff came right on my face, it's dark outside. And I just laid there and I thought, I wonder what other pastors do on Sunday mornings. But we had church that day. We worshiped Jesus. We prayed together. We heard from his word. It wasn't huge, small, but it was a start. God loves small beginnings. He loves seeing the work begin. And I don't know how big or what God's gonna do to this church. I don't know how big his plans are for us, but I can tell you this, it started small. And so did Nehemiah's project. And so will the thing that God leads you to do. You'll probably just start small. But you gotta start. Start small. You'll never finish something you don't start. And, and, and the start doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be flashy. Just take that first small step. You know, maybe God is calling you to overcome an addiction. I'll tell you this right now. You can't overcome an addiction today. But you can take one step. You can pour your stuff down the toilet. You can find a meeting. You can, you can get an accountability partner. Start small. You're not gonna fix your broken marriage today. But you can talk to your spouse you can sign up for counseling. You can read a book. Just start, small, start. You're not gonna eliminate human trafficking today, but you can start educating yourself on the problem. You can meet with an expert. You can stop looking at porn yourself. Start small. You're not gonna break down all the walls in your family today, but you can make a call you could send a text. You could apologize to somebody. Just start small. None of those steps are gonna finish the job. But those are great small first steps. I'm gonna tell you, you're not gonna get your masters or write a book or build a huge business today. You're not gonna build a ministry or a life group or a relationship today. And you're not gonna turn your school or your workplace or your office to Jesus today but you can take a first small step of faith. And then you just take the next step. You just do the next thing that God calls you to do and you trust his plan and you follow his lead and you trust his power and you take that next step. And maybe it's tiny and maybe it's a little bit wobbly but it's a step in the right direction. That first small step and every step that you take after that, you're doing something really important you're doing something really amazing. Here's what it is. You are giving a miracle a chance to happen. 
You're giving a miracle a chance to happen, and that's exactly what Nehemiah did. Look at this passage. This is uh, chapter two, verse two. So Nehemiah's all crushed because of what's going on in Jerusalem, right? So he's, he's all sad and everything. The king asks him, why do you look so sad? You don't look sick. You must be deeply troubled. And he says, then I was terrified. And you know why he was terrified? Because the king could do anything, right? The king says a word, he's dead, that's it. If he, you say something he doesn't like, off with your head, that is it for him. And so he's, of course he's terrified because he's thinking, am I gonna do this? Am I gonna ask him? He's terrified. But I replied, long live the king, how can I not be sad? The city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king asked, how can I help you? With the prayer to the God of heaven, he's gonna give a miracle a chance to happen. And he says, well, if it please the king, and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And he had no reason to think it would work. He had no reason to think that the king would say yes to that. He had no reason to think that the king wouldn't have him killed. But the door was open, so he went through it. And he knew it would take a miracle but he gave a miracle a chance to happen. Sometimes we're so scared something's not gonna happen, we don't give it a chance to happen. That's not Nehemiah, man. The king asked him how he can help, and Nehemiah's like, well, as a matter of fact, and he pulls out a list, right? Let me go to Jerusalem. How about fast-tracking some of these permits for me? Right? How about putting a word in with some of those other kings for me? How about some military support? How would you feel about paying for the whole thing? Right? <laughs> what are the odds? that the king would say yes. But God isn't limited by odds. God isn't limited by anything. Nothing is impossible with him. So Nehemiah just asked and he took a step and he gave a miracle a chance to happen. I think so many times we assume something's impossible and we forget, you know, that's kind of God's deal is impossible stuff. Miracles are miraculous to us. But to God, it's just another day at the office, right? Then let's, let's not forget who we're talking about here. He created everything from nothing in a week and had time to take a day off. He's, he's pretty good. Give a miracle a chance to happen. If, if we think God is really the God of everything, and we really think he created everything from nothing. If we really think he put the planets where they are and he does all the stuff he does, why would it be a surprise to us if we think he could divinely direct us? Why would it surprise us if he was able to do some miraculous thing? Did, did, here's a question. Did anybody in the Bible do anything big that God called them to do without a miracle? They didn't. Otherwise, they become the heroes of the story, right? All they did was say yes. All they did was take these small steps and give miracles a chance to happen. So maybe God's calling you to save your marriage, and somebody says, well, hey, have you tried counseling? And I get this all the time. People say, yeah, that's probably not gonna work. You know, I mean, short of a miracle. <laughs> it's like, sweet. That's, that's what God does. That's like his specialty. Let's give a miracle a chance to happen. Or maybe it's an addiction thing, and somebody says, well, have you tried AA? Have you tried going to celebrate recovery? And you say, oh, man, it's not gonna, that's not going to work. Well, how about giving it a chance? How about giving a miracle a chance to happen? 
People say, well, I wanna know the word, I wanna, I wanna know God better, I, you know, I just wish I could understand it. Well, I mean, have you signed up for a class? Have you read it? Have, do you own a Bible, right? Let's give a miracle a chance to happen. Oh, my neighbor will never accept Jesus. Have you asked? Let's give a miracle a chance to happen. If you've dreamed forever of starting a business, maybe it's time to stop dreaming. Have you written a business plan? Have you done some research? Have you given a miracle a chance to happen? I think sometimes people are so focused, it's, it, I don't know, it seems like really holy. It, it seems really religious to say, you know, I'm waiting for a miracle. I'm just waiting for a miracle. And too many times we do that instead of giving a miracle a chance to happen. Maybe you know somebody like this that says, maybe it's your brother-in-law, you know, I know I need a job, so what I'm gonna do is sit here on the couch and watch ESPN and pray that God will do a miracle, right? Give a miracle a chance to happen, right? How about, it? How about filling out an application, right? You know, I, I know God is, I have this burden. God's given me a burden that I need to get healthy and I need to lose some weight. And so I'm just praying that by the time I finish this giant bag of Fritos, <laughs> God is gonna do a miracle in my, and you know, it could happen, it could happen, but you might wanna take a couple of steps to give a miracle a chance to happen. I talk to people like this all the time. They'll say, you know, um, I'm not gonna go to a, to a Christian counselor for depression or anxiety or these relational things. I'm just praying for a miracle. But maybe God working through that counselor is the miracle. Let's give a miracle a chance to happen. When God gives you these divine burdens, you know, whatever, the thing that you can't let go of, the thing that you can't stop thinking about, the thing that you know you're supposed, maybe it's evangelizing the world, or maybe it's eradicating hunger, or maybe it's fixing your marriage, or launching a ministry, or starting a business, or getting healthy, whatever this divine burden is, man, let's learn from Nehemiah. This story's in here for a reason. Don't try it alone. Start small and just take that next step and give a miracle a chance to happen. And when it gets hard, because it's gonna get hard, when it gets hard, don't give up. Once Nehemiah started this wall, it started so easy. He asked the king, the king said yes, right? It seemed like, oh, this is gonna be a breeze. And then it just got brutal after that. In chapter two, all the people accused him of rebelling against the king. In chapter four, all the city leaders of Jerusalem came against, they were making fun of him. Um, one of the leaders said, it looks to me like if a fox walks on that wall, the wall will fall over. So they mocked him and made fun of him. The people complained about how hard the work was. Um, they were constantly being threatened with attacks. In fact, at one point, he had all of the workers working like with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other so that they could fight off these attacks that were coming against them. There were death threats. There, were, there was a conspiracy to kill him. They told lies about him. They blackmailed him. They tried to intimidate him. But against all of that opposition, 
against impossible odds, they built that wall in 52 days. And I promise you, a lot of those days, it seemed like it was impossible. A lot of those days, it felt like one step forward and two steps back. But Nehemiah was sure that he was walking in God's divine direction. And he refused to give up. And we said it last week, get comfortable being uncomfortable. God is not just going to, Satan is not just going to roll over, right, and just say, yeah, go ahead. If you're trying to walk out God's plan in your life, Satan is not just going to stand by and watch that happen. It's not going to be easy. It's, it's going to be frustrating. It can be exhausting, but it's so worth it. Look at this verse in Galatians, Galatians 6, 9. It says, let's not get tired of doing what's good. At just the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing. Let's think about that phrase, right? Don't get tired of doing what's good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we just don't give up. That harvest of blessing is rich, satisfying, abundant life. That harvest of blessing is a life that is part of God's plan to redeem the world and bring his kingdom come. That, that, that harvest of blessing is new life and better life and eternal life. And that's God's plan for your life. That is divine direction. Amen? Okay, look, we got lots of time. We're really super early. I wanna talk to you guys about something. Um, of all the divine direction that you'll ever get in your life, the most important divine direction you'll ever hear is when you hear Jesus say, follow me. And you know, you're here. It's Sunday. You sat through this. You're probably Christians, right? But there might be somebody here that would say, you know, I'm not sure, man. I, I don't know exactly how this thing works. I feel something. I know something's not right. Maybe I don't have a relationship with God. Maybe I'm not even going to go to heaven. Maybe my sins haven't been. I don't know. I got something's going on in here. Can I encourage you with something? Maybe that's your divine burden. Maybe that's God giving you divine direction. Maybe that's Jesus saying, follow me. And we make this so hard. Churches are the worst. Pastors are the worst. We make it so hard. Oh, well, fill out this application. You know, let's see if you're worthy, right? Let's, let's see what your sins look like. Let's talk about how many times you've missed church or how little money you've put in the offering or how many bad things you've done or how many good things you haven't done. Pastors are the worst. There's only one worse, and that's Satan. He loves to get in your ear and tell you how impossible it would be for you to be saved. That's one of the ways that he makes it hard for us. But I just want to tell you something. Don't, don't listen to me. Don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to a, a guy on TV. Don't listen to a church. Listen to what God's word says. If you really have this burden, something's not right between me and God, I want to make it right. How can I be saved? How can I live that life? Joy talked about it earlier. There's no condemnation for us that are in Christ Jesus. How do I get some of that, right? How can I be saved from my sin and my failure and my shame?
How can I be saved? Romans 10.9 says, if you say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And right after that, it says, today is the day of salvation. So you don't have to understand everything. Just start small. So if you're here, or if you're with us online, and you're feeling this burden that you need to do something about your eternity, let's do it. If you already believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he's able to give you new life and eternal life, you're halfway there. All you have to do now is say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. All that means is you're going to say, I'm going to follow him. I'm going I'm to do it his way from now on. I'm going to listen to his spirit. I'm going to read his word. And I'm going to follow him. So if you're ready to do that today, man, you don't got to raise your hand. You don't got to stand up. You don't got to come down here. All you have to do is in your own heart believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and say with your mouth that he's Lord. So I'm going to lead you in a really simple prayer right now. This prayer is not magic words or anything like that. This is just you saying with your mouth what's already gone on in your heart. If you're ready to become a Christian today, just pray it with me. And believers, I'm going to ask you to just repeat this prayer with me loud and strong to encourage anybody here that may be saying it for the first time. Just pray like this. Jesus, I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. But today I become a Christian. I believe in you as my risen Savior. And I'm asking you to be my Lord. So fill me with your spirit. Teach me from your word. Help me to live your way for the rest of my life. Thank you for my salvation. Amen. Okay, look here, if you did that today for the first time, this is a big day, man. It's a small first step, but it's a big first step. Your whole eternity has changed, and God has forgiven you for every sin you've ever committed. Listen, here's the bonus. And every sin that you will ever commit is now forgotten by God, forgiven by God. His spirit now lives inside of you, and he's going to empower you to understand his word and to do what it says. And he is going to be waiting for you in heaven when you die. It's a big big day. It's your first step. And so now one of the things we want to do is celebrate that, right? We want to celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we're going to do that by taking communion. So when you walked in here today, I hope that they gave you one of those little cup things. If you're with us at home, I hope you've got a piece of bread or a juice or something that you can use for your communion elements. And we're just going to celebrate what Jesus did for us I'm going to look at a passage of scripture. It's in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is the first time they did communion. Do you got one of those for me? Thank you. I'll just take the whole thing. Thanks. Uh, it says, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. So you've got that little wafer, right? That represents the body of Jesus, right? He, he paid for our salvation, not with money, with his body, with a brutal, brutal, torturous, death and resurrection and so as we hold this represents his body in his hands and we take this into ourselves we're becoming one with him in his death on the night he was betrayed Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. he broke it into pieces and he said this is my body which is given for you so do this in remembrance of me as you hold that bread pray with me Jesus thank you so much for your body thank you for your sacrifice Thank you for leaving a perfect heaven and coming to this dirty little planet and living a really hard life and dying a really awful death and resurrecting for me. 
Thank you for providing for me a life that I could never have on my own. In your name, amen. Let's take the bread. Now, if you've got that cup, in the same way Jesus took a cup of wine after supper and he said, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people. It's an agreement confirmed with my blood. So do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Listen, whether you became a Christian just now or 50 years ago, this is the new covenant that we have with God, that he will see you as righteous, he will see you as good and perfect and holy, he will see you as worthy of a relationship with him, not because of how good you are or who you know or where you go to church or who you're related to. He will see you as good enough as he looks at you through the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the blood of Christ. We thank you for your love for us that you showed us as you poured his blood out for us on the cross. God, we thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for coming for us and for saving us. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's take the cup. And you know, communion is a very sobering, holy, sacred event where we remember what Jesus did for us. And as we remember it, a couple of things happen. One is we want to give him thanks. And two is that we want to celebrate. So whether you became a Christian five minutes ago or five decades ago, I'm going to ask you to stand up with us now and let's sing to him about the glorious day of our salvation.